Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting is brought to you by Hulu Plus. Watch your favorite shows anytime, anywhere with Hulu Plus on your TV or on the go with your smartphone or tablet. Shows like The Good Wife, Modern Family, The Mindy Project, and many more. Right now, you can try Hulu Plus free for two weeks when you go to huluplus.com slash fighting. That's huluplus.com slash fighting. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for October 9th, 2014, the Mom Jeans Dad Jokes Edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the dad of Harper, who is seven, and Lyra, who is nine. I'm Allison Benedict, the mother of Harry, who is six, Sam, who is three, and Wally, who is one. We are both editors at Slate. Hello, Allison. Hey, Dan. So on today's show, we will talk to Heather Karina, the founder of the sex ed website Scarletine, about discussing contraception with your kids and the American Academy of Pediatrics' recent recommendation of IUDs for teen girls. And then Allison and I will discuss mom genes, dad jokes, and the ironic mockery of parenting prevalent in society today. Plus, triumphs and fails, recommendations, a listener call about babies and sleep, and we'll read some of the many, 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 many emails we got in response to our discussion last episode on parenting ambivalence. But first, some pitches. If you enjoy Mom and Dad are Fighting, please tell your friends. Send them an email telling them to give us a try. Send them a link directly to an episode. We really want more listeners so we can, like, sell ads to support this podcast. And someday we can do awesome live shows where we drive around in Acuras, just like our big brothers and sisters at these Slate Gab Fests. And second pitch, if you're a fan of Slate, please consider joining our membership program, Slate Plus. You get bonus podcast segments, behind-the-scenes looks at Slate long-form projects, plus... You get exclusive members-only podcasts. This week, we're launching our weekly discussions of American Horror Story with Willa Paskin and Brian Lauder. It's free to try for two weeks. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. Okay. That was very fast. I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm the Micro Machines guy today. (laughs) Uh, If you've got topics you want us to discuss or questions you want to ask us, please email us at momanddad at slate.com. That email again, M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com. Uh, or if you've got a question you want us to answer on the air, call us and leave us a message at 424-255-RUDE. All right, triumphs and fails. Allison, what do you got? Wait, Dan, do you want to tell everyone why you're using your hurry voice? Where are you going oh, after yeah, this so podcast? After this podcast, I'm going to National Airport to meet my family, and we are going to Orlando, Florida to go to Disney World and the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Um, I will complain to everyone I know about this trip, but in fact, I, will, I bet I will actually have a pretty great time. I look forward to the triumph. Yep, it will definitely be a triumph. Um, okay. We spent so much money, it had better be a triumph. 
I have a fail. It has nothing to do with mail. Uh, thank you, everyone who wrote in. We got so many, as Dan mentioned, we got so many um, emails from our last episode, mostly about parenting ambivalence, but we got a bunch also begging me to open my mail. <laughs> um, I appreciate your concern. Thank you, everyone. Uh, my fail this week is that, so, um, you know, the, the past couple of weeks, there have been a few Jewish holidays, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and my family has or I have kind of struggled to find the right place for my family to go to services. I feel like, you know, strongly that I want that tradition in, in our lives, but it's hard or at least hard for me to find to find the right place. Anyway, we went to a new place, a new synagogue that I really, really liked. My husband really liked. The kids had fun. It was great. However, my kids, it, this was a family service for families with kids, I think, ages nine and under. My kids and all of the kids were just completely wild. I mean, just running around, just maniacs for the whole thing. And it was essentially set up for them to be allowed to do that. So my fail is that my kids couldn't sit still, uh, but also that we collectively, this is a societal fail, uh, don't (laughs) expect them to. There was no expectation at all that any of the children would sit or be quiet at all. So instead of setting up a service in which everyone would go and kids would behave themselves because that's what you do in in synagogue, they set up a whole separate service in which kids were just expected to be insane as they would be everywhere, even though they were literally in a house of worship. Right. Which, like, in some sense was great because it took the pressure off me and I could listen and the kids would kind of come run in and out of, you know, singing and the service was geared to them anyway. Uh, but I did keep looking around and thinking, what the hell have we all done? Like, what? Yeah. where did we go wrong? No, I'm with you on this one that I think that's I think that's bogus. I don't I feel like you you got to have at least some expectation that in a religious ceremony, kids will do their best to actually sit in one place. All right. I'm with you. That is a societal fail, though. Also, your fail. Yeah, I also have a fail. Uh, and it happened in a baseball stadium this week. Baseball fans, uh, you well know that the Nationals were in the playoffs until earlier this week when they were eliminated. Uh, but last week I took Harper, who is seven and who is sort of a developing Nationals fan, to game two of the LDS. Um, it was a sun, it was a Saturday game. It was at five o'clock in the afternoon, so it wasn't too late. Um, she didn't have school the next day, so it seemed like a, a great opportunity to show her playoff baseball and get her even more excited about the Nationals and give her sort of a formative sports experience like I had in 1982 when the Brewers went to the World Series. Um, but in the end, it was a fail, and this is because – I told Harper that unlike some previous regular season games that we had gone to, um, we would be staying until the end of this playoff game because that is what you do during the playoffs. In fact, that is what you should do during all baseball games. That's a, a rule I hold to, but I had sort of skimped on that rule a little bit as the kids were really little. We would go to games and we would like leave in the seventh or eighth because kids were tired and it was hot or whatever. But whatever, it was the playoffs. It was a time to demonstrate to Harper that fans do not leave early. Um, people in Wisconsin will know what I mean when I say that like the formative experience of my young sporting life was that I stayed till the end of Easter Sunday in 1987. Right now, Milwaukeeans everywhere are nodding. Uh, but then, uh, the Nats who had been leading gave up the lead in the bottom of the ninth and the game went to extra innings. It went to the 11th and the 12th and the 13th inning and no one ever got hits and nothing was happening. And it was so 
cold. It was like 41 degrees. We were both underdressed. So I had to buy a sweatshirt for Harper that actually cost more than the game ticket. And it didn't even fit. Uh, and the game went to the 18th and the Nats lost. And my parenting fail is that I did not stick it out. We left in the bottom of the 13th. That is completely inexcusable. It is a horrific parenting fail. I taught my daughter how to be literally a Fairweather fan. I am disgusted. I know. I'm disgusted <laughs> with myself. I, it's, I, in retrospect, I wish we had stuck it out because the experience of sticking it out for 18 innings would have been way more memorable and interesting, even though they lost, uh, that, and would have made her a, a bigger fan than, than bailing in the 13th. Like some kind if of you chicken. had been there alone or with a grown-up friend, would you have stayed or, oh, yes. or left? Oh, yes. I definitely would have stayed. You would have stayed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, All right, so before our first topic today, um, we want to thank all of you, our listeners, for the amazing and fascinating emails that you sent in response to our last episode where we discussed parenting ambivalence. Some of you agreed with me that people ambivalent about having kids shouldn't have them. Some of you agreed with Allison that drawing a line like that makes no sense because few people ever truly know and you don't want to regret not having kids. We wanted to read a couple of the emails on the air to give listeners a sense of all the many various responses that we got, which were all super, super interesting. Allison, why don't you go first? Um, Okay, this is from Jordan. I'm just going to use first names. Um, Who wrote... For same-sex couples, ambivalence, as you described it, is not really an option, simply because there are so many factors and steps involved when two men or two women, or a single parent for that matter, think they might want to start a family. First, you have to decide how you want to start a family. Adoption, known donor, anonymous donor, surrogacy, a co-parenting arrangement. Then, at least for us, as two women, how you want to try and conceive. At home, with a doctor... The necessity of those steps for a gay couple does not erase the question of ambivalence. I agree with Allison 100% ahem that it's pretty impossible to ever know. Something my wife and I talk about all the time is how we wish we could just stop using birth control and see what happens. We are jokingly jealous of anyone who gets accidentally pregnant and can claim the baby is a happy accident. You started to touch on this a bit when discussing age, but I do think the question of ambivalence implies a certain assumed set of privileges that don't apply to lots of potential parents out there. Just some food for thought. Uh, uh, yeah, that was a really good letter. And and one particular point that is worth noting is that a lot of people emailed to tell me that I am crazy when I say that adoption is a, a an obvious and easy option for many people should they wait a really long time because adoption is really expensive and hard and and bureaucratic and a nightmare for many people and impossible in some cases. So I, I am duly chastened on that issue. Um, oh, should I read my other letter? Or no, no, I've, go got, I've got one. So I've got one <laughs> okay. from listener Nicole. Uh, thank you, Dan, Nicole writes. for point- Thank you, Dan. Dan, she says, for pointing out what I've been feeling my entire life. The parenting industrial complex is everywhere, and to even suggest a possible alternative option is considered blasphemy. This is not improved despite other cultural sensitivity awareness. You see, I am not a mom by choice, and I listen to your podcast. If you are ambivalent about having children, you should wait. However, Dan's two-option example, where plenty of ambivalent couples have children and become great parents or don't have children, is missing a key option. Plenty of ambivalent people have children and then are not great parents. The evidence around me is that plenty of people who took the advice to just go for it, you'll be fine, are not fine, and neither are their children. A couple cannot possibly know what it is like to have children or what it's like to not have children before that important decision is made. So you can't know for sure either way, but you should certainly be more than ambivalent before diving into the deep end of any decision that will change your life and more significantly another human's life forever. 
Allison. Uh, I'm going to read this one more letter, but I also just want to say that Megan Dom, whose article we discussed, whose New Yorker article we discussed um, on the show, tweeted saying that Dan really understood it, really got really got her and got um, her art, her piece. So Megan Dom loves me. Two Allison. points for Dan, yep. one point for Allison. Zero, uh, zero points. <laughs> no, the last for the oh, last right, letter right, I read said right. I was 100. percent We right. will on on balance. I'd say I won in the letter. In the letter contest. Yes, that's definitely Plenty true. of people called me cray-cray, yeah. as one of them did. But, but it was mostly about the, your mail. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, okay, this is from Ellen. For my husband and myself, the question we asked when we were contemplating getting married was not, do we want to have a baby, but do we want to be parents? For us, the answer was yes. If I could have become a parent without having a baby, in some ways I would have chosen that. Having a baby, for me, was a drag. Being a parent, however, has been great. We have three children. We've struggled financially due to our choice. My husband has always been and is still self-employed, and I was basically a stay-at-home mom until the third was in kindergarten. We don't have trust funds, had no family close by to assist us ever, and we're determined to raise our kids and not send them to full-time daycare. I believe one missing component to the conversation you had on the podcast is parenting. That is the point, to raise a self-sufficient, independent adult and let them fly away when they are ready. Our 26-year-old was the last to, to leave, and it took a lot longer than the other two. But they are independent, happy, and really fun to be around. They like us, come home as much as they can swing it, and we feel as if our role in their lives was successful. Of course, there were many bumps along the way for us all. We never thought it would be without bumps. The focus on the choice should be on parenting and teaching all that you can so that these cherished beings have an opportunity to have great fun and successful lives themselves. And I love that letter just because it makes me feel like there's a future that is not so rough. <laughs> right. We'll call that one a push. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, from listener Joanne. Normally, I find Dan Coyce to be my podcast soulmate. Thank you, Joanne. But I couldn't disagree with him more today. What? Uh, to tell someone that if they are ambivalent at all, they shouldn't have children and does them a great disservice. Before having a child, I was about 75, 25, certain, uncertain, and I think my husband was 50, 50. I think we made the right choice to have a child and did it at the right time. I'm so glad we talked ourselves into it, and I'm grateful that no one told us, if you're ambivalent, don't do it. I know now my life is more fulfilled and more directed because of it, and I feel more connected to my husband despite the downsides of less sleep and less money in the bank. It's not correct to say that delaying the decision because you can always have a child at a later age is always okay. There are consequences. If you're having a biological child, health risks for both the mother and child increase with the mother's age. Do you want to see your child grow up well into adulthood? Do you want to increase your chances of becoming a grandparent? Then don't put off parenting until you're 50. If you're ambivalent, the answer isn't no, don't do it. The answer is think about your long-term goals, your well-being and happiness. Think about whether the pros outweigh the cons. Then either have children or don't. Which is not bad advice, though I still stick with my insane draw uh, line in the sand on this issue. You can't really still stick with that. Do sure, you really? I do. I, do. Mm -hmm. I still I still do. Look, I, everyone who wrote in to say, well, we had children and it turned out to be the right decision, that's great. And once you have children, as I wrote to many people, it no longer matters whether you are ambivalent or not. It no longer matters whether it was a good decision or a bad decision. It was Although the Although we did get a letter from a woman who regrets having children. That's true. We did. And that was a very like an amazing and touching and scary letter. Um, and there are definitely people out there who feel that way. And as that woman noted, that's it is basically impossible to say that out loud. You have to write it anonymously to a podcast if you want to say it at all. Um, but it still I still stand by this notion that 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 the world is better off the fewer children people have and that 
if you if becoming a parent if having a child is something that is right for you at some point you can know it that doesn't mean that having kids that anyone who has kids while ambivalent is making a horrible mistake and will hate those children forever that's most likely not the case but it does mean that that i think most people can wait and should wait all right so our first topic allison take it away Last week, the American Academy of Pediatrics released new contraception guidelines advising doctors to recommend long-acting reversible contraception like the IUD to their teenage patients above all other forms of birth control. Also last week, a study out of St. Louis, which offered women and teenage girls free contraception counseling and then provided them with whatever contraception they wanted free of charge, released its results, and they are pretty stark. The sexually active teenagers who chose the copper IUD experienced no unintended pregnancies at all. Zero. Knowing all this, is there any reason to put your daughter on the pill anymore, or should every parent be helping their teenagers opt for the IUD? And regardless of type of contraception, how should parents talk to their kids about birth control? Here to help us out on these questions is Heather Corinna, founder of Scarletine, a sex ed website for teens and 20-somethings. Hey, Heather. Hey, how's it going? Great. Uh, so a 2012 Planned Parenthood report found that parents think they are talking to their kids about sex much more often than their kids say they are. And birth control in particular is addressed by far fewer parents than topics like how to say no to sex or what makes a healthy relationship. In fact, 29.3% of parents said they had discussed birth control methods many times with their teens, and only 23.8% of teens said they discussed it with their parents. So before we get into the IUD versus other forms of birth control question, can you give us a little rundown of what really constitutes talking to your kids about birth control and, and what information needs to be imparted, how and when? Sure. I mean, I think one thing that we often see is that at some point a parent will say, to an adolescent, if you ever need to talk to me about birth control, talk to me, right? And while I can understand that that seems like a good approach, right, there they are, they're making clear that they're open, what happens kind of on the back end of that that we hear from teenagers a lot who come in and say their parents said that, and then when if we say, great, so talk to them, they're not really feeling so confident that that was an invitation, right? And there are kind of a whole bunch of other things that go along with it, which is to say, well, if I do talk to them, I'm disclosing that either I'm sexually active or I'm considering being so, and they didn't really say anything about that part, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the, it was never followed up with kind of a, you know, I'd really like to talk to you about this. The invitation, I think, is sometimes, even if it's put out very sincerely, not necessarily interpreted um, as sincere, but kind of as a throwaway. So, you know, one thing that I'd say, and again, I think, I think parents that approach it that way have absolutely the best of intentions. But I think that, you, one, you want to follow it up, right? So if they don't kind of come back with that, you know, I don't know, in a year after you put it out, ask if you can have a conversation about contraception rather than like, even doing another, you still not need to talk to me about it. You know, you, you, know, you, know, you can if you want to. Um, and I think one thing to do there is just to, one, make sure that the message is also clear to say, I'm assuming that if and when we, you know, you do want my help or support or we want to talk about contraception, that that's because you're, you're having a sex life or you're interested in, in having a sex life and that's okay, right? So then that's just done, right? <laughs> then that's settled and nobody has to worry about kind of that other floating, much more loaded, obviously, part of the 
situation. But I think you can talk about it, too, in a way that's a little more comfortable to say it doesn't make an adolescent necessarily have to disclose uh, where they're at in their sex life if they don't feel ready for that yet, which is to just say, do you know what options are out there should you ever need them? Let's look at what options are out there. Let's talk about what that is. I think another good opening is always to say that if and when they want to have a consultation appointment with an OB-GYN, that's a good one to do there. And you can schedule those appointments with sexual health care providers. Somebody can have an educational appointment that isn't necessarily an exam. Um, that's always a really nice thing to do because it kind of establishes a relationship with a sexual health care provider, perhaps before they need it, or perhaps they do need it, and they just don't want to tell the parent yet. But if they go in for that educational consult, they can say that, you know. That's a really great idea. Is there, a, is there any kind of age recommendation that you would make for when you might want to bring a girl in for, a, for an informational uh, appointment? You know, I think that I think that one good opening to that can be to say, you know, kind of even around the time that menstruation starts, right? And you can say, we're going to have this appointment even if you just have questions about that, right? This is just for questions. There's a lot of anxiety around exams, right? So I think that one thing you want to make clear is like, I am not tricking you <laughs> to getting right. an exam. <laughs> you don't, once you're in the office, it's not like, you know, then all bets are off and the doctor can do whatever they want. But, and there really are quite a lot of fears around this, especially around younger adolescent women. So, you know, I would say sometime around then. But again, too, that's a, that's a thing you want to ask them rather than do. So if somebody says, yeah, that sounds great, great. If they say, no, I don't want that, that makes me nervous and terrified of that, I don't think that that's something to push. Is there any benefit to trying to um, encourage your daughter into getting contraception before she's even close to being sexually active? You know, again, I think this is one of these things that's really individual. I mean, we've definitely seen young people that have said quite clearly that they would feel a lot better about that. And this is kind of one of the things you see where you see a lot of young women, for instance, who are going on the pill who are saying it's, you know, for menstrual issues. But, eh, maybe it is, <laughs> maybe it isn't. But I think even when it is, kind of the side benefit of that of, is of them feeling like, well, you know what? if and when it comes time for me to also have contraception, I'm, I'm squared. And I think that's, you know, that's a nice confidence piece that can be in there. But um, I, I don't know that I'd say way, way, way before, just because I, one thing we hear a lot from adolescents right now is just they feel a lot of cultural pressure um, to be sexually active and to be sexual. So I think you want to kind of be mindful about if you were to go about it that way, think about how to do it in a way that isn't sending a message to say, I expect you to be sexual. I'm thinking about it now because I think now is the time just because you don't want to put, you don't want to be one more person to put that pressure on. I, so, uh, oh, go ahead, Dan. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I feel a little bit torn on that because because I feel, I agree with you that the, that the culture puts that message out there and I'm sure that a lot of uh adolescents feel that pressure all the time but all the same it's not an unreasonable expectation and i don't want it to present it to my daughters as an unreasonable expectation i mean of course they are going to be sexually active that is a thing that teenagers do and i i've sort of am in search of the best way to say to my daughters when they reach puberty basically like you should get an iud i mean i i almost want to present it as a rule like in, in the same way that you must wear seatbelts in the car 
you should like wear an IUD in your body. And I know that's like gross in many ways, but it also feels like the safest possible thing I could do for them. I don't think it's gross. What what I would say is I don't think I don't think it's particularly pro-choice, right? Kind of in the bigger in the bigger, you know, bubble of what pro-choice is in terms of everybody kind of really respecting people's reproductive choices, right? And I the one thing that I would be concerned about with that approach too is that what's what what you take away from them in doing that is one their autonomy in learning to make these choices themselves, right? Because there's this whole other host of choices that you're not going to be able to get to make, right? <laughs> that you can't kind of make a rule or can't really do for them. And if they're not kind of starting from the ground up with this stuff really feeling like something that's that's their choice, I think it makes it a little bit trickier, you know, as they kind of take steps down the road to, to, to learn to take care of themselves and to learn that these things are about their choices, not choices other people are making for them. And I think that's particularly an issue when you're talking about young women who so often don't feel like they have sexual agency in the first place, right, that it's up to somebody else um, more than them in terms of what they want sexually. So that would be my concern with that. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Allison? I'm wondering, so there there are studies that show that parents talk a lot more to their daughters than to their sons about this. And I mean, I guess that makes sense. A lot of the responsibility falls on the daughter for the protection. Although at the same time, uh, according to the Guttmacher Institute, the condom is still the most common method of contraception for teens having sex for the and first time. the youngest teens. So what is the conversation with boys? I mean, I have three boys, and it, it is a conversation I should be having, I know. I think so. And obviously, too, it's, you know, the options are much more limited, right? So if you're just going to talk to Ingerman just about birth control options that are their options, you're pretty much talking condoms, withdrawal, vasectomy, right? You're not going to talk to a 13-year-old right. boy about a vasectomy for obvious well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> that would that would be the like flip of your was, example, right, Dan. We're going to hold him down and give them IUDs and vasectomies. <laughs> um, but I think that I think there's something else you can talk about too. You definitely can talk about those options, right? Those are their options, and, and certainly we're going to talk about condom use. Period, both from a sexually transmitted infection standpoint and a pregnancy standpoint. I mean, from kind of where I stand, condoms are the golden rule, no matter what. Right, And if you want to really knock it out of the park and have everybody feel like they're reducing their risk as much as they can and making room for, you know, mistakes, which will happen, it's condoms plus something else, right, whatever the something else is. But I think that, I think that with boys you can also talk about the fact that if they're at a point of their lives in which contraception is necessary, probably their partner will all, you know, one, the, the biggest consequences fall on their partner right? Not on them. So that's something to talk about is how do we make these choices and how to be, be responsible, understanding that something could radically change our lives, but not as much as it could radically change someone else's. I think talking about how you can be supportive of your partner using their method is a great conversation to be having. I mean, honestly, we, we generally see adolescent guys doing pretty well with this. Um, I'm I think that's probably kind of stands counter to what people would think. But, you know, I think one of the things is when it's really put out there to say things like maybe can you help some, you know, can you share the cost of somebody's method, right, if they have it there? Or what can you do to understand that there are certain side effects? Like one big conversation we hear a lot is, you know, condoms get in the way of sex or condoms make sex feel different. But, of course, 
A birth control pill makes sex feel different, too. Every day, a birth control pill makes your body feel different. A lot of methods do that. So I think just kind of talking about, you know, how it impacts them, but also understanding the impact it has on their partner and figuring out what they can do to be supportive of the partner as well. So what do you think about the IUD? I mean, is this something that you would, like, that you feel like the emphasis, the shift should should be toward the IUD? I was delighted when that statement came out. Like, that was like a full-on happy dance in the office. I mean, one of the things to know is that, you know, in that recommendation, and this was a much bigger piece from the AAP about kind of all of the methods, is rather than saying, you know, IUD, we have to push the IUD above all else, what it said was IUD should be our first-line recommendation. So what's pretty much happened up until now is someone walks in to a doctor's office, an adolescent comes in and says, I want birth control, and the first line was always the pill, right? I mean, sometimes even to the point of just the prescription is being written while they're still in the middle of the sentence of saying, I want birth control. So one, we're not having a lot of these conversations where a provider is saying, well, here are what your options are, but the pill is usually what's being suggested first. And the the pill is almost the worst suggestion. Compliance rates with adolescents and the pill are as low as 30% in six months. Right? I mean, and I don't know about you, I have a hard time taking a pill, any pill, every day. (laughs) Yeah. Around the same time. You know, I'm middle-aged. I've tried with many different kinds of medications, and it's, it's hard. I can't take my vitamins every day. So, and I'm not trying to hide my pill. Um, they're tiny, right? They, they, they roll away. They're gone forever. So the first line recommendation for a long time was really just one of the absolute worst when it came to what was really usable um, for adolescents and what was likely to be highly effective. And IUD, on the other hand, is one of the most effective methods we have. It's foolproof, you know, once it's in, you don't you don't have to do anything. There's nothing that you have to do about it except checking the strings every great now and then. Um, it's long term. It's in there for a really long time. You take it out if you decide that you want to be pregnant. So you know, it's cost effective, more cost effective than methods like the pill or the patch. So I I think it's a fantastic recommendation, and I'm super excited. Okay, great. Uh, Heather, thanks so much for joining us. This was was really helpful. We're going to go off and talk to our children about contraception. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's go on to our listener call. This week, our call is from Kim from Ontario. Take it away, Kim. Hi, my name's Kim. I'm a new mom with an almost five-month-old who wakes up about every three hours in the night. Advice ranges from close the door and let him cry it out, or you're a terrible mom, to feed your baby on demand, or you risk your milk supply, and you're a terrible mom. Uh, what are your thoughts on the ridiculous glut of sleep literature, and what worked or didn't work for you? Thank you. That's a great question. Allison, how's Wally sleeping? <laughs> Wally's sleeping well. I was going to say I can answer this first since I'm a little bit closer to this stage. First of all, Kim, you're not doing it wrong no matter what you're doing. Correct. <laughs> um, but I will say that I lean more toward the cry it out method. That's, you know, that's what we did. Uh, I read a book. You know, the, the books are all basically the same. A book? Yes, I read a book, <laughs> a whole book. It was called The Sleep Easy Solution. But my, I think generally, like, you know, I suppose that helped, but helped guide us or helped keep me strong through all of the crying. Although, honestly, I never felt like it wasn't that hard to let them cry for me. Um but I generally think like the last thing you do when something works is a thing that you think actually worked, but maybe your kid just aged out of whatever the issue was. 
Um, you know, I think that waking up every three hours with a five month old kid is really, really hard on you. And if there's a way around that and a way to, you know, both get you to get more sleep and your baby to get more sleep, uh, your milk is not going to dry up if you sleep through the night at this stage. Um, I would, you know, if I were you, I'd try it. But I also understand that, you know, some people just feel uncomfortable letting their kids cry. I never did, and it worked, and my kids are all good sleepers. But I don't know if that's because of what I did or because I just lucked out. Right. That's the issue, of course, is that, you know, we we also had kids. You know, Lyra basically just figured it out on her own, and Harper didn't. But we let her cry it out about seven months in, and it worked within, like, two weeks. And it was that it was like really horrible. We 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 did really have a hard time hearing that. And it really made us like miserable, but it eventually worked. And so because of that, because of the relative ease of that situation, we have always been like really, really silently judgy of people whose kids have like sleep problems going into like year one or year two or year three, because we're always like, oh, well, of course, that never happened to our kids. But that's insane because. It totally could have happened to our kids. It was it was just the luck of the draw. Like, you know, it it I really do believe that it that it is more a matter of the kid than of any method that the parents use. So my advice for Kim would be make a plan and stick with it. Like it doesn't really matter what the plan is. Kids will eventually learn to sleep. It seems to me that they do it best when there is a routine of some kind whatever that routine is. So make a plan that makes you feel comfortable and maximizes your sleep opportunities, Kim, and then just go for it and get as much support as you can from any partner in your life or any family in your life and take as many naps as you can and uh, and good luck. What, just one more thing to add to that. I do think that if you are going to try the cry it out, the sooner you do it, the better. Not necessarily because it works when, better when the kid is earlier, but it's hard, it is harder to listen to them cry when they're older and they can actually scream mama or, you know, oh, yeah. when they oh, seem God, more yeah. like real kids. We did it early. We did it at three months, I think, with all of the kids. And it's like, you know, that is a different kind of cry. And I think it's probably an easier one to let to let go. Yes, that is good advice. If you have a question you want us to answer on the air, um, give us a call at 424-255-RUDE. That number again, 424 424- Two five five seven eight three three. Okay, let's move on to our next segment. But first, uh, we have a great advertiser this week. It's Hulu Plus, the on-demand streaming video service. Hulu Plus is great anytime, but especially now because it's finally fall TV season, the greatest of all TV seasons for people who watch a lot of TV, like me. Right now, Hulu Plus has all the current season episodes of your favorite shows like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Parenthood, The Mindy Project, and the show that Slate TV critic Willa Paskin is calling Fall's best new sitcom, Blackish, starring Anthony Anderson and Tracy Ellis Ross. You've probably tried regular Hulu on your computer, but Hulu Plus is so much more because it works on your computer, but also on your smart TV, Roku, Apple TV, Xbox, and pretty much any streaming device that you already own. You can watch shows on your phone or your iPad and on your own schedule wherever you are. So you can watch Blackish commuting to work on your lunch break, or on the bench at soccer games or swimming lessons, here's a hot tip. Just look up and smile every few minutes, and no one will have any idea that you're watching TV. In addition to current shows, Hulu Plus is a great library, including all episodes of All the Real Housewives, OC, New Jersey, Beverly Hills, New York, Atlanta, and also the two amazing seasons of Party Down. 
Hulu Plus also has more than 800 Criterion Collection movies. Plus, as I've mentioned before, Hulu Plus, as I've mentioned before, and I know you appreciate, kids' shows on Hulu Plus are ad-free. That means your kids get to watch their favorite shows without you having to endure them begging you to buy them things they see on commercials. Hulu Plus is only $7.99 a month, but you guys, our awesome listeners, can get a two-week free trial when you go to huluplus.com slash fighting. That's H-U-L-U-P-L-U-S dot com slash fighting. The regular trial is one week free, so this is getting you an extra week. Please make sure you use huluplus.com slash fighting so you get an extended free trial and they know that we sent you. That's huluplus.com slash fighting. All right. So our second topic. Uh, Today we address a crucial and important topic in the annals of parenting, mom jeans. About every three months, uh, another woman in my Facebook feed shares a post from way back in 2009 by an Alabama blogger named Rachel Callahan. And the share is always accompanied by some comment that's like, this is the most amazing, useful blog post I have ever read. The blog post is called Mom Jeans and the Dreaded Long Butt, and it is very simply a servicey post explaining how to make sure that the pockets on the ass of your jeans do not give you a long, flat butt. It's accompanied by a lot of photos. It is like it is kind of a masterpiece of a blog post. It is very simple and clear. And based on the grateful responses that appear on Facebook every single time a woman posts this, it is desperately needed in America today because evidence suggests that moms do not want to wear mom jeans. And it's amazing proof that actually, well, of course, your body changes as you get older and sometimes because you have kids. Your your tush does not get longer. That's correct. Your yeah. tush does not magically <laughs> double in length. That right. is not a thing that happens. It is a matter of the pocket placement on your jeans. The definitive cultural statement on mom jeans was made, of course, by this Saturday Night Live fake ad, which we are now going to play for you. Are you looking for the perfect gift for mom this Mother's Day? Introducing Mom Jeans, exclusively at JCPenney. Mom Jeans, Mom Jeans. Mom jeans fit mom just the way she likes it. She'll love the 9-inch zipper and casual front pleats. Cut generously to fit a mom's body. She'll want to wear them to everything from a soccer game to a night on the town. And with your choice of ankle length, capri length, or shorts, you'll find the perfect jean for even the least active of moms. So this Mother's Day, don't give mom that bottle of perfume. Give her something that says... I'm not a woman anymore. I'm a mom. I'm not a woman anymore. I'm a mom. Allison, do you own mom jeans? Do you fear mom jeans? I don't think I own mom jeans, but... uh, But who does, really? Jeans in general, for women, uh, I'll be interested to hear what you say for men, but are difficult. And once you become a mom, or more importantly, once your body changes because of age and also because of all the babies, there's at least a way way to talk about this, something to point to. It's not just, oh, my body sucks and no jeans fit me. It's, you know, I've got a mom body now, so no jeans fit me, which I actually kind of like. It makes it less about my particular body and more about this thing that happens to all of us. But I do think the definition of mom jeans has gotten a lot hazier since that SNL ad. Uh, the high-waisted jean with the big back pockets and the long zipper and peg legs is now totally in. Uh, it's it's not for moms. It's for hipsters in Bushwick. So now mom jeans are actually just jeans that 
over 30 women look less good in than their younger counterparts. So all jeans. All, all jeans, jeans are mom jeans now. Well, I think in my brain, using the term mom jeans or mom anything actually is like a, sli- a slightly self-deprecating way to acknowledge the aging process and try to lightly deal with the question of whether or not certain styles or mannerisms or activities are age appropriate. And I, the line used to be clearer. Uh, and I think that now the idea of age appropriateness is kind of passe. And I'm glad about that. But I think I still have this nagging voice that wonders if maybe I shouldn't be wearing chucks to work. Uh, and I think it's all sort of part of the same thing. There, there was a I'll stop soon. But there was a piece in 2006 in the Washington Post titled Mom Jeans Flatter No One. <laughs> Um, and in it, the writer interviews Pilar Guzman, who at the time was running Cookie, Condé Nast Glossy Parenting Magazine. And she says that the mom jeans phenomenon uh, encapsulates what happens to some women when they become parents. For many women, there's this idea that dressing in a way that's obviously figure flattering or youthful is unbecoming to a mother. There's something insidio- insidious in this culture that suggests this. There's that message that if you're not martyring yourself and that extends to your physical appearance, then you're not doing your job as a parent. That's interesting. I I don't I don't see that necessarily among my cohort at least. I feel like I mean I am privileged enough I guess to live among a cohort that actually that does often still try to appear youthful and fit and uh and to dress well and so like the traditional mom jeans are not big and on the streets of Arlington Virginia but one thing that I noted about you mentioning that you feel like the concept of age appropriateness has become kind of hazy and you embracing that in a way is that there's a flip side to that though which is that you know as we on a Slate email list, we bounced around this mom jeans piece last week, and Hannah Rosen, our colleague at Slate, who's been a guest on the show before, um, noted that she gets a little bit frustrated when she goes to stores that cater specifically to like young 20-somethings that sell cuts of clothes that once upon a time were the sort of exclusive province of older women, women with mom bodies, let's call them, um, because – they, she feels like they that young, when young people co-opt those fashions, they essentially ruin them for older people because, of course, a 22-year-old looks better in mom jeans and normcore mom jeans on the streets of Bushwick than your typical 45-year-old woman. So basically, it's just now another thing that 45-year-olds look worse in than 25-year-olds instead of just being a province all their own. I mean, she's so right. She was talking about free people, and she was saying that, she that she wrote, store. "In my darker moments, I imagine the youth are mocking their moms by adopting fashion trends <laughs> that moms adopt by necessity, but that obviously look much much better on an eighteen year old. I mean, everything looks better on an eighteen year old, and I'm all right with that. I mean, I don't think there's something like, you know, horrible about acknowledging that. I mean, we you know the the whole normcore trend is about you know basically is about everything looking good on a very skinny young person. <laughs> right. Right. So that so I guess I am normcore other than this like the looking really good and skinny part. But do you feel do you feel like ever like uh, you know I should be a I should be a real dad and grow up and start wearing a suit to work? No. I do not. Like and that's more a function of my sort of laziness and slovenliness. And so jeans for me 
They've only become an issue recently in that I only very recently started thinking about how my clothes fit at all. Like that was my embrace of adulthood actually was moving beyond the teenage view that whatever, I'll just buy extra large and everything and then I don't have to worry about it to the notion that, oh, I could actually buy clothes that don't appear to be just a shapeless mass upon my body. Like that was my embrace of being a grown up. Um, and so, and so I am just now learning that there are jeans. I guess I was wearing dad jeans at like at age 17, shapeless, no ass jeans that didn't look very good on me. Right. And only recently have I started adopting the shocking fashion trend of wearing a thing that fits my body. Do you attribute the changes in your body to being a dad or just to aging? Of course it's to aging. Being yeah. a dad like keeps me mildly healthier in the sense that we have fruit in the house. And uh, I'm chasing my kids all the time. Like, I eat way better now than, and I exercise more now than I did when I was 24. So it is slightly, or not slightly different. It is actually different for moms. I mean, yes, women who don't have children, also their bodies change as they age. And I can't, you know, I don't know what my body would be like if I hadn't had kids. But I do have that thing. It's a real thing. Right. You know, whatever, mom's stomach, like, it's it's there. Uh, and it makes a difference in terms of where, like, the waste of your genes hit. Right. No, that's true. So, uh, so I guess sort of the question this leads to is, you know, as you pointed out in that Pilar Guzman post, there is – do you feel that there is pressure in America to to sort of think of moms as not women, to think of dads as not men? I do not – I mean, I think that it is true that there is like this cultural idea that Amanda Hess actually wrote about this a couple of years ago for Slate about, you know, uh, people using the term mom to mean out of touch, oblivious person. Right. Like every article about a tech in, you know, a new tech advancement being like, how do you explain Bitcoin to your mom? Right. But I honestly and I see what's what's like not cool about that and insulting about that. But I also, you know, I think it's kind of funny and I actually think it's kind of true as we get older. I mean, I don't need someone to ha explain Twitter to me at 37. But whatever my kids are doing when I'm 64, I probably like won't completely get nor should I. And I don't think there's anything, you know, wrong with that. I mean, I, you know, I think we age. <laughs> I'm not I'm not into it. I I want to take a firm stand against mom jokes and dad jokes. Um the the number one example of the thing that drives me like semi crazy uh about just this very specific I think millennial irreverence towards the figureheads of mom and dad that seems to me like a sort of a, like an adolescent rebellion that has made its way into people's 20s is uh, Dad Magazine, which is this recurring feature on The Toast, a website that I love that, and read all the time. But I'm driven totally insane by Dad Magazine, which is this monthly feature, uh, a parody magazine cover that features, of course, the only stories that dads would ever care about, which are driving routes and last year's YouTube videos and the damn squirrels. And I that drives me nuts. Like, it drives me nuts that that is the image of a dad now, that he's basically a feckless, hapless, cheerful idiot who is mildly sexist but concerned for your safety. Like, that... Isn't that your image of your dad, though? No, like you, you no. can't relate to it as your own, as yourself. Really? No, that is. I mean, not I think the dad magazine thing on the dad. toast is hilarious. I think that there this persistent sense in our culture that there's no one more out of touch than a mom or a dad drives me crazy, and it conflates generations in a way that doesn't make that much sense. And 
And I think that it is, I mean, as Amanda basically pointed out in her piece on Slate, that it is something of a disservice to our moms and dads, yours and mine, Allison, and people of our generation, you know, who fought the battles of civil rights and women's rights and gay rights and who raised us at a difficult time and who are not universally out of touch morons. Sure, some old people are not completely up to date on what Bitcoin is, but many of them have accomplished amazing things and are amazing people. And many moms and dads irrespective of their momdom or daddom uh are completely in touch and do not necessarily need to be grouped in a bushel as out of touch yahoos like that just like that drives me nuts i mean i think it's funny i agree with you that like we're not all out of touch yahoos and i guess there's like a i feel like i can i can separate myself from i mean i read dad magazine not talking about john but talking about you know like i think of my my dad so like the real old dad we're like we're still the you know kind of we're still the young cool dads and moms whatever my dad uh, has a better phone than me and is in better shape than me and is hipper than me so maybe i'm in the minority here I mean, I, I guess I don't understand. I don't understand why you would take offense to it. It's you know, it we. It, do- I, I feel like slightly, if not like overwhelmingly offended, but slightly offended at the simple notion that to be a mom or a dad turns you into a certain kind of archetype that is no different from every other dad or mom out there. And maybe I'm offended because I feel like I don't fit that archetype. Um, and that it ignores a certain kind of, for example, the dad archetype ignores a certain kind of very engaged fathering that I feel like most dads of my generation that I know engage in. Dads today are not out of touch. They don't not know what the family's up to. They don't say, okay, honey, you just make the plans the way they do on the cover of Dad Magazine. That is not actually what dads are like. So I don't I suppose love being that's true, but that. millennials aren't anything like millennials are painted in the New York Times. And hipsters aren't any, the people who live in Bushwick aren't anything like, or the people who live in Brooklyn aren't anything like Brook, you know, Brooklynites are painted. I mean, it's it's not just happening to moms and dads. It's everyone. All right. So everyone be nicer to everyone else. But Allison, let's can, bring it back around to jeans. Yes. What are the best it? jeans for a mom of a certain age? So I emailed my mom, Myra Benedict, and I'm gonna read her email if that's okay with you. Oh, yeah. Give me permission. Oh, oh okay. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> my mom my mom wears jeans that are called NYDJ, which is a, a play on what is the term? What is the Donna Care NYDK? Yeah, thank you. DKNY. Thank you. Sorry. But NYDJ stands for not your daughter's jeans. And they're great jeans. She looks great in them. So she wrote, I remember a few years ago when a friend told me about NYDJ. I was a bit thinner then and I thought they sounded like old lady jeans. So I ignored the suggestion. Now, those are the only ones that fit me. They're very flattering for an older woman's, quote, normal body, and they don't look like frumpy jeans at all. In fact, you and Leslie, Leslie's my sister, have told me how cute I look in that in them. Just don't lift up the shirt because you'll be horrified at how high they are at my waist. <laughs> but that's what makes them comfortable and a nice fit around my rear end. Not so low that they show my you-know-what. Sometimes I wonder if I'm not too old to wear jeans, especially blue denim jeans. But sweaters and tops look much better over jeans than over, quote, slacks. In fact, I don't even own a pair of, quote, slacks. I have ankle pants or crop pants or cigarette pants, but not pleated office-type slacks. One more thing. When Grandma was quite a bit older than I am now, she wanted me to buy her a pair of leather pants. So I did. When Aunt Joyce, who's my mom's sister, saw them on her, she said to me, what were you thinking? But Grandma thought she was the cat's meow. Thank you, Myra. You are my hero now. (laughs) 
And I like not your daughter's jeans. And I can't tell if I like them now because I'm an old lady or because they're great. Do you own a pair of not your daughter's jeans? I don't, but I've, you know, I've considered I've considered them. You will have them by age 45. That's my prediction. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to recommendations. Allison, you want to go first? Yes. Um, I am recommending something I haven't read. Is that allowed? Uh, I'm I recommending something that I, really, <laughs> that I really want to read. Uh, I heard Gene Weingarten, the Washington Post writer on NPR the other day, talking about his new children's book, Me and Dog. Do you know about this book? I do know about this book. Have you read it? I have not. Um, it's basically a children's tale that is essentially about um, uh, atheism, about the world that is not constructed around faith in a higher being. Um, and I'm t- very interested in reading this book to my kids. Uh, and I also just really love an interview that he did in the Washington Post with the Washington Post religion reporter um, where she asked how did he talk to his kids when they were young about God or about atheism or about faith. And he said, I'm sure at various times I told my kids that my belief is this is it. And it is beautiful. The world is filled with hope and opportunity, and it's our job to take care of one another. Uh, and I love that line. Like, you know, there's a way to talk about, like, this is it. This is wor- This is the earth. This is the world. These are the people around you. And this is kindness. And this is morality. And uh, these are ethics. These and are that beautiful, have to be wrapped up in faith. Beautiful words from a guy whose Twitter avatar is a pile of <laughs> fake shit. Uh, I will totally read that book. I like Gene Weingarten a lot, uh, despite his atten- occasional crankiness on Twitter. Uh, my recommendation is a TV show. Uh, for kids, it is called Fetch with Ruff Ruffman. Um, Allison, I'm recommending this specifically to you, who is always looking for new TV shows for her kids, but also to our listeners. It is a game show, reality show hybrid with kid contestants, and the host of the show is a cartoon dog named Ruff Ruffman. It was produced by for PBS Kids from 2006 to 2010. All five seasons are on Netflix and Hulu+. Plus. Um, you should watch them in order because the it's like a whole season-long arc, like Dancing for the Stars or something. The same contestants start at the beginning of the season and compete throughout the whole season. My kids are totally insane for the show. They watch it together, which is like rare. It is At their ages, it is hard to watch shows, especially ones with sort of vaguely educational content that they will actually deign to watch together. And the show is pretty fun and like not offensive and clever and teaches interesting things about science and math especially. Um, and my favorite thing about it is that it was canceled in 2010. So I do not have to try and follow Lyra's constant demands that we find a way to get her to be a contestant on the show because she can't it's impossible the show is no longer being made rough ruffman is a really great dog name. it's a great dog name yes if yeah. it has not been if it had not been taken by the show i would recommend it as a name for someone's actual dog all right well that's our show please email us at mom and dad at slate.com to suggest topics or recommend guests or books or whatever and if you've got a question that you want us to answer on the air, please give us a call at any hour and leave a message on our voicemail at 424-255-RUDE. That number again, 424-255-RUDE. You can remember that because that is what I'm going to be to everyone at Disney World who approaches me asking if I want the autograph of a princess. Please subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Mom and Dad Are Fighting and leave a comment or a rating on the show that helps people find us. And again, please tell your friends about the show. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>